love getting into the scriptures with you guys. I'm so glad that all of you are here. Again, if you're here for the first time this morning, let me just give you a little bit of lay of the land as to what we do Sundays and Wednesdays. Um, our Sunday mornings in this hour, we normally study through books of the Bible. We'll take the whole school year and study through a book of the Bible. Uh, in, in the summertime, if you're ever here in the summer, it's usually a smaller crowd, but we normally go through like an Old Testament book in the summer, so we just finished a, uh, a study through the book of Exodus. And then in the, in the fall and spring in this hour, we're normally in the New Testament, and so, for example, last fall, spring, uh, we studied through the book of Revelation. And if you, by the way, we do have a podcast, if you uh, are curious about what I might have said about Revelation, you can still find those on, it's just the Lakeview College Ministry Podcast, you can find that and, uh, and listen to those if you, if you want. Um, but uh, this year, our focus is going to be in the book of Romans. It's going to be another chunk to bite off, but I'm looking forward to it. Uh, we look hard and think hard about what, what Scripture says because we believe that what Scripture says, God says. We believe that, that Scripture is uh, the Word of God to us, and so there's nothing more important, nothing more valuable. Auburn may be new to you. It may, be, it may seem like college, and this college experience is the most important thing in my life right now. It's not. It's great, but it's not. The most eternally important thing in, in your life right now uh, is to know clearly what God has said to you. And we find it in His Word. So we'll work our way straight through the book of Romans this year. And, and you know that where we leave off this week, that's where we're going to pick up next week. And I always encourage you to read, read stuff ahead of time so you can do that. That's Sunday mornings. Wednesday nights, we also meet in this room. That's just our midweek uh, college Bible study. Most weeks we meet at 8 o'clock on Wednesday nights in this room. And we have just a worship service uh, the band will play, we'll teach. This, this, a lot of times that's topical what we go through, but this year in particular we're going to be studying through the parables of Christ. Uh, that'll be a fun study. So I hope you'll come. That's normally at 8 o'clock. This week is different because this week it's nothing but pancakes. Um, and that's at 7 o'clock, pancakes and sausage come hungry. And all we're going to do is just overview, uh, uh, preview the upcoming semester. But come hungry and invite people. Okay. Today we're beginning our study in Romans. It is hard to overstate. It is hard to overstate the significance of the book of Romans. Um, I don't know if anybody said it better than Martin Luther. I hope you've heard of Martin Luther. He's kind of an important guy, sort of changed history. He wrote a commentary on the book of Romans, and in that commentary, he wrote a preface to that commentary. And in that preface, this is what he said about Romans. He said, and I quote, This letter is truly the most important piece of the New Testament. It is purest gospel. Just put this in your pipe and smoke it. This is what he's about to say. It is well worth the Christian's while, not only to memorize it word for word, but also to occupy himself with it daily as though it were the daily bread of the soul. It is impossible, he says, it is impossible to read or meditate on this letter too much or too well. The more one deals with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. We find in this letter the richest possible teaching about what a Christian should know 
the meaning of the law, gospel, sin, punishment, grace, faith, justice, Christ, God, good works, love, hope, and the cross. We learn how to act toward everyone, toward the virtuous and the sinful, toward the strong and the weak, friend and foe, and toward ourselves. Therefore, each and every Christian should make this letter the habitual and constant object of his study. God grant us his grace to do so. Amen. That's what Martin Luther wrote. And that's my prayer too. Um, and I look forward to, to trying to see with our own eyes in this book of Romans all that Martin Luther evidently saw in it. Um, and we start that today. So if you have found Romans in your Bible, let's read our passage for today. We're going to start in chapter 1, verse 1. And not going to read very much, just the first seven verses. That's going to be the passage that occupies our attention today. Romans 1, 1 through 7. And we read beginning in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through, the, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness, or the Holy Spirit, by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ, to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, what we just read is your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And I pray. I pray that you would give every one of us within the earshot of my voice eyes to see the truth you would have us to see in this passage. Would you give us not only eyes to see it, minds clearly to understand it. Would you then give us also hearts to embrace it, love it, see it as important, as eternally important. And would you give us wills to obey whatever it admonishes us to do? Holy Spirit, would you give us all ears to hear? Would you please give me the help that I need to teach? I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I don't, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I just told you that in the fall, spring, uh, we always study through a, a, a different book of the Bible. And well, in the summer, an Old Testament book. And, and the, first, the first time, the first week we come to a new book, I always feel like we need to do a little bit of like backgroundy stuff to the book because I don't want it, it's, it's not, this didn't just arise out of thin air. It arose in a context. It, it was a real letter written by a real man to real people at a real time. And so that's gonna, it has a bearing on how we understand or how we, how we, envision the things that we read in it. And so I don't want to spend a lot of time on that, but we do need to do a little bit of background digging. But after that, if you're taking notes, here's what we're going to see. After we talk about some background, we're going to see, not surprisingly, that this passage is about the gospel. 
Um, it's gonna, this passage is an, is an introduction to the rest of the book, and it's going to introduce some main themes about the gospel that Paul's going to explain at much greater length later in the book. Here's what I want us to see. I, mean, I, I see him explaining two things about the gospel. One, we're going to see in verses 1 through 4, gospel foundation. Gospel foundation in verses 1 to 4. Paul is very clear in what he is referring to when he talks about the gospel. And hence, what we ought to be referring to when we talk about the gospel. And then secondly, after we talk about gospel foundation, we're going to talk about gospel fruit in verses 5 through 7. Paul makes very clear distinctions between what the gospel actually is and what the gospel produces. Between what is the gospel and what are the effects of the gospel in a person's life. So let's dive into it, and before we get to those two things, let's, like I said, let's just get a little bit of background for the book. So obviously, first of all, Romans was written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, those are the first words of the letter, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Ancient letters were not written like today's letters, where we write what we write, and then at the very end we sign our name to it. No, that's not how they did it. In ancient letters, the writer would have introduced himself or herself first, right off the bat. Here's who I am. And, and who's where I'm writing to? And then you come to the letter. And so it opens like that. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. And we know the story of Paul. Most of us do at least. Paul was a Jewish Pharisee before he came to Christ. He was, he was the strictest of all Pharisees, Jewish Pharisees. He hated Christianity. He did not believe Christ had risen from the dead. He hated Christianity and he persecuted Christians to the very death. That was by his own admission about himself. This is what he said about himself in Galatians 1, 13 and 14. He, he wrote, You have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. That's what he said about himself. And we see that played out in real life in the book of Acts. We see that, 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 that most vividly played out uh, when in, in Acts chapter 7 and chapter 8, he's, he's standing watch and presiding over and giving official sanction to the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, which would have been a gruesome death. It's not just throwing little pebbles at people. I don't want to describe it for you. It's gruesome. Stoning to death. And he was, he was holding the coats of those who were stoning that man to death giving his approval. But it was in chapter 9, that was chapter 8, chapter 9 of Acts, that Paul meets Christ on the road to Damascus. Why was he on his way to Damascus? To do there what he had done to Stephen. To find as many Christians as he could find and put them to death. And he met Christ on the Damascus road and was converted to Christ when, when the risen Christ and ascended Christ met him there. And he was converted to Christ. And, and he wrote, by the way, this was, so it was written by Paul, that Paul, he wrote this letter to the church at Rome, where he had never been. In fact, when you, when you come to the end of the book of Acts, he is, he is uh, sort of waiting, he's in prison and he's waiting to stand trial before Caesar, but he had never met this church. He, we believe that he wrote this letter to them when he, was, he spent three years in the city of Corinth on his last missionary journey. And we believe he wrote this letter to them while he was there. And there's not a whole lot that we know for certain about how this church at Rome got started. Um, we can, 
He, he, says, he says at the end of the letter, I haven't, I haven't come to you yet, so Paul had not started it. So how did it get there? We don't know. We can guess. Here's my guess. In Acts chapter 2, when, on the day of Pentecost, when, when thousands, of, thousands of Jews from all over the world had come to Jerusalem for that feast, we're told that Jewish, uh, Jewish people from Rome were there that day. And Peter stood up. Remember they were speaking in tongues and everything? And then Peter stood up and he preached the gospel to them and 3,000 of them got saved. My, my, my spiritual imagination likes to believe that perhaps some of those Jews from Rome heard Peter preach that day, were, were among that 3,000 who were converted to Christ, and they took the gospel back to Rome. And, and a church began there. And that's why, that's why early in its history, I think the church at Rome was a heavily Jewish Christian church. Which is why you, it would explain some of the things you see in, in you, when Paul writes Romans, he assumes that the reader has some knowledge about the law. And he calls Abraham our father, Abraham, right? Um, but we do know from history and we know from the book of Acts, chapter 18, verse 2, that the, at, there came a point where the emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews out of Rome. And in their absence, the church at Rome became a predominantly Gentile church, which is why it would explain when you see like chapters 9 through 11, especially in chapter 11, Paul, it seems like the Jews were the majority people in that church. And so you had a, a mix of, of Jews and Gentiles in this church, and, and he's writing. You can tell in this letter it wasn't, it wasn't as divided as the Corinthian church, but he's writing to a church that in some ways was divided, uh, divided over racial lines. Divided over cultural differences, sometimes divided over theological differences. And so Paul is writing this letter to try to correct some of those things before he comes to visit them. One more thing about Rome in general. Uh, it was the cultural center of the world. Um, and Christians were marginalized. That's the polite way to put it. They were marginalized. Um, they were often mocked, publicly mocked. They were belittled. They were unjustly tried. They, were, they would be, they would be uh, because people misunderstood things like the Lord's Supper, a rumor that went around in the ancient times about Christians but the, the, that they were cannibals because they would say the, the bread represents the, 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 the flesh of Christ and the, and, the, and the wine, the blood of Christ. They didn't understand that. So they, these are cannibals, and they would be accused of all kind of unjust things and thrown in prison. Uh, and even put to death unjustly. This letter was probably written around A.D. 55 or 56. That's less than 10 years away from A.D. 64 when the emperor Nero set fire to large portions of the city of Rome and blamed it on the Christians. And because he blamed it on the Christians that he was the emperor, he used that as an occasion to arrest many Christians, many, many Christians, and he lined the streets of Rome with crosses and crucified the Christians on them. And when it started getting dark, he lit them on fire to light the streets. That's, that's the Rome that he's writing to. That, that, these are the Christians. That, that, this, this is where they were, they were living. And this is what they faced every day of their lives. It's to this people and to this situation that Paul writes, and he writes to them knowing all of that, but reminds them of what is most eternally important, which is the gospel. Look at verse 1 again. 
Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. And so let's, let's, that's at that point that he leaves off talking about himself and he, and he introduces what he, what he's going to talk about, the gospel of God. And like I said, up to verse 4, uh, he's going to lay out the foundation of what the gospel is. And so let's look at those verses, verses 1 to 4, about gospel foundation. So, into verse 1, set apart for the gospel of God. And then in the next three verses, he sets out three foundational truths about the gospel. First, he, said, he says in verse 2, that this gospel that he's talking about, this gospel of God that he's talking about was promised beforehand. It didn't come out of thin air. It was promised beforehand, which is to say that even though Paul, Paul the apostle was preaching about something new that had happened in history, i.e., Jesus Christ came, Jesus Christ was crucified, Jesus Christ rose from the dead, even though that is a new thing that had happened in history, in a very real sense, the gospel was not new at all. He says in verse 2 that it was promised beforehand. How? Through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And the prophet Moses uh, recorded the very first promise of the gospel in the, uh, when, it, when that was promised in the Garden of Eden. That, that, that's that's uh, as early as anybody can make a promise in the world. In the Garden of Eden. By the way, in Genesis, mentioned Genesis 3, if you come, we have Sunday evening services at Lakeview. Not in this room, but in big church. And Pastor Brian is preaching through the book of Genesis on Sunday nights. It's fire. You should come. Six o'clock. But in Genesis 3, God promised to send one who would crush the serpent's head and defeat sin and defeat death and save sinners. That's Genesis 3. That's Garden of Eden. And that promise not to belabor it was repeated again and again and again and again in so many different ways in the Old Testament. I mean, it was, it was, it's, it's promised in like just straight promises. Just straight promises like, I just had to pick one, like Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and she shall bear a son and she shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Like just straight promises. There's, there's somebody coming. But even in all kind of other ways, like God gave us picture promises in the Old Testament. Like, He gave us picture promises through people. People like Moses, who led his people out of slavery. There's a great deliverance out of slavery coming, not just out of Egypt, but out of sin. Or the people like David, who was a godly and righteous king, but even he committed adultery, so there's a more righteous king still to come. Picture promises. And even like, not just in people, but in like events. In the Old Testament, like, like bringing the people out of slavery in Egypt, that Exodus event, there's a, like I said, there's a greater Exodus coming. That event was a promise. Or, or not, just, not just events, but like places, like the promised land. That earthly promised land was not the end goal. Heaven is the goal. You know? He, moved, he says this was promised beforehand in so many ways, and now it has happened. And he quickly moves to the, to the fulfillment of the promises. And he says in verse 3, This gospel of God is concerning his son. He's going to name his son at the, at the end of verse 4. Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
That the gospel of God is concerning His Son is to say that the gospel is something that God Himself accomplished. God Himself came in the person of Jesus Christ. And Paul's going to have more to say about that. But let me just make this basic point that the, the gospel, I, this may sound basic, it needs to be said. The gospel is about Jesus and the work that he did for sinners. That's what the gospel is. That's the good news. The gospel is not, I used to struggle with this and now I don't struggle with that anymore. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not, I used to be like that, but now I'm like this. I, me, I, me. It's not like, that's not the gospel. Paul makes it unmistakably clear that the gospel of God is concerning His Son, Jesus Christ. The gospel is not about me or what happened to me. It's about Jesus and what He has done for me. And that is exactly what Paul gets to. After saying that the gospel is of God is concerning His Son, he starts explaining what about the Son. He, said, he, said, he first says that He humbled Himself and came in our likeness, like us in every way but without sin. How does he say that? Verse 3, he was descended from David according to the flesh. Which is to say, I have to leave a lot on the table here about this descended from David. There's a lot there, but we only have a finite amount of time. But all it is, which is to say, at, at very root, the fact that he is a descendant from David is to say that God himself took on our flesh. He came like us. He took on my form and your form. Right? As a descendant of David, he came to fulfill the promises of salvation made to David. In 2 Samuel 7, in Psalm 89, that it would be one of David's descendants who would bring salvation to his people. Descended from David. That even, the gospel of God is concerning his son. God, you start with God himself and you see what Jesus had to do to save sinners. He had to condescend. He had to come down. He had to descend himself from David in our flesh. That's what theologians call his state of humiliation. He had to humiliate himself for us. What, are the, what do theologians mean by his state of humiliation? What, some of the old confessions say that he was born in a low condition like us. That he was born under the law to obey it. That he faced all the miseries of this life. That on the cross he took the wrath of God for sinners and he was buried in a tomb for a time. Humiliation. This is God we're talking about. But notice where Paul goes in verse 4. But he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. This is what theologians call his state of exaltation. That Jesus rose again from the dead on the third day, that he ascended to the right hand of the Father. But what does Paul mean when he says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God at his resurrection? Is that saying that Jesus somehow was not the Son of God until the resurrection? Not at all. Note that phrase, in power. He was declared to be the Son of God in power. 
by his resurrection from the dead. He was always the Son of God from the moment he was born, before he was born. But during his state of humiliation, when he was born in that low condition like us, when he was born under the law, and he faced all the miseries of this life for us and for our salvation, when he was in that low condition, his glory was hidden. The way Isaiah prophesied it, he had no form that anybody would esteem him. But when Jesus finished the work on the cross and from the grave, that state of exaltation commenced in his resurrection from the dead. Now his glory was there for all to see. When it says he was declared to be the Son of God, that word declared in Greek is where we get our word horizon. Horismos, horizon. In other words, you... You could now see it just like you can see the horizon. Just as vivid and as clear as the horizon is, now you can see He is the Son of God and He is the Son of God in power. I see it because He's risen from the dead. Salvation was complete. Sin now fully judged on His cross. Payment complete by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, he says at the end of verse 4. Which would have been a great comfort to a persecuted church in Rome? Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is. No government is Lord. Jesus is. One day every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess, including Caesar, that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the foundation of the gospel. It is all about what Jesus Christ did for sinners. God promised it before He came. He humbled Himself and came like us, yet without sin, but still to take our sin on Himself on the cross. And He was exalted by His resurrection, salvation complete, to save those who come to Him in repentance and faith, but to judge all those who don't. And refuse. Paul's going to make it clear in this letter that salvation is all of grace alone. It is a gift of grace earned by Jesus Christ for all who repent and believe. And it is a, it is a salvation that, that is as sure and is as certain as Jesus is risen from the dead. For a believer to lose his or her salvation is, is to try to put Jesus back in the tomb. I'm not saved because I used to be this way and now I'm not anymore. I'm saved because Jesus Christ came and did for me what I could not do for myself. And He did for me all that was required of God for me to be saved. He lived a sinless life that I have not lived. He lived it also as my substitute and my representative before God. And He bore in Himself the consequences of my sin. On the cross, God treated Jesus as if He had lived my life. My sin judged there. That's the gospel foundation. That is every ounce of my hope. I, I don't put any hope in myself. None. I wouldn't trust my eternity with the best 15 minutes of my life. But to say 
that my hope and all the eternally important foundation of my hope is what Jesus did for me and nothing, nothing about me, is that to say that there's, there's now no fruit or anything that flows from that? It's just, hey, Jesus did it and they were good? Is that to say there's no fruit that flows from that in my life or any sinner's life? No, there will be change in my life and in your life, but that's just not the gospel. Does that make sense? The gospel is about what Jesus did. Anything about me and what happens in me is simply the fruit that comes from the gospel in me. So think very quickly with me about that before we, Lord willing, have time to talk around our tables. Gospel fruit. You'll see if you stick around. This is always a struggle. Paul laid out what I'm calling the foundation in verses 1 to 4. And he turns to what I'm calling the fruit in verses 5 to 7. And there's just a couple of things that I want to notice before we close. First of all, note Paul in verses 5 through 7, note Paul's emphasis that there will be fruit from the gospel in everyone who repents and believes. There will be fruit from the gospel in everyone who repents and believes. For one thing, Paul himself is an example of that in his own life. We already talked about that. That's the difference between Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 9 and all those letters and all those missionary journeys. But Paul makes the case in verses 5 to 7, this is the case for every believer because he states, he states that purpose very clearly in verse 5 when he says, through whom, through Jesus, we, and I know he says we, he's referring to himself here, have received grace and apostleship to do what? To bring about the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. He will use this exact same phrase at the very end of the letter in almost the last words of the letter in chapter 16, the, to bring about the fruit of the obedience of faith. What is that? What is the obedience of faith? In one way, it is faith itself. In one sense, the obedience of faith is faith itself because Acts chapter 17 verse 30 says that God commands all people everywhere to repent and believe. And so, in a very real sense, repentance and faith are obedience to a command. But the obedience of faith is not just faith itself, but it is the ongoing obedience after that to God in our lives that flows out of that faith we have in Christ. And I think, I think this is why Paul mentions his apostleship in verse 5. Because what did the, the apostleship of Paul, what did his apostleship accomplish? Well, I, I can think of two things. One, it accomplished three missionary journeys where he took the gospel to people who had never heard the gospel and they repented and believed and churches were started. That's one thing. But the second thing that came out of his apostleship were the Scriptures. The Scriptures. He wrote 13 letters in our New Testament. And Ephesians 2.20 says that our faith is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ Himself being the cornerstone. The Scriptures He left for us to follow in obedience. The Gospel does not leave us unchanged. Why? 
Why, why, is, why is that such an imperative? Because look again at verse 5. What's the, why, why, do, why is the obedience of faith so necessary? It says at the end of, in the, almost the end of verse 5, it's for the sake of his name among all the nations. It's for the sake of the glory of God in our lives. We're not changed just so we can be better people, but so that God is glorified in my life and glorified in your life. But we need to note a second thing as we come to a close. Not, not just his emphasis here that um, there will be fruit in, in everyone who repents and believes, but note the second thing he notes and emphasizes he emphasizes not mistaking the fruit for the foundation. Don't mistake the fruit for the foundation. Notice Paul says about himself in verse 5, notice that he, he mentions that he received grace before apostleship. I have received grace before apostleship. And yes, the goal in us is obedience of faith, but what is the focus of the rest of the passage? What does God call us to? What does God call us to in this passage? In verse 6, He calls us to belong to Jesus Christ. To belong to Him. He doesn't, call, he doesn't say you're called to do anything first. You're simply called by God to belong to Jesus. Belong to Him. And yes, he says in verse 7 that we're called to be saints. Saints doesn't mean just really good people. Every believer is a saint. And holy, a saint means holy one. And I'm not holy first and foremost because I'm super good. I'm holy first and foremost because Jesus was perfectly holy in my place. And if you look carefully at verse 7, before he says called to do anything, he simply reminds us that we are Loved by God to all those in Rome who are loved by God. And you're called to be saints. And he finishes verse 7, reminding us of the grace and the peace that we have received from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. What is the point? What's the point I'm making? Yes, the obedience of faith will be there for every true believer. But the way, the way to that obedience of faith is not keeping a law but thinking deeply about the, about the gospel of what Jesus has done for us. You belong to Christ. You are loved by Him. You have received grace and peace from Him. You are a saint, first and foremost, not based on your actions, but Jesus in your place. The obedience of faith comes not, not from a law to keep, but by receiving every day that we have grace and peace in Jesus Christ. We're loved by Him, belong to Him, a saint in Him. My feeble holiness, whatever I can give is just gratitude. It's just gratitude of the perfect holiness I already have in Jesus. Well, praise the Lord, we've got like seven minutes to talk about around our table.